Hello and welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Julia Samuel, one of the country's leading psychotherapists and best-selling author of Grief Works and This Too Shall Pass. She was awarded an MBE in 2016 for services to bereaved parents. She's Vice President of the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy and an Honorary Doctor of Middlesex University. She's also a godmother to Prince George, though I didn't find this out till after I spoke to her. I reviewed her most recent book, This Too Shall Pass, for the Sunday Times, just before lockdown, and I liked it so much I decided I had to talk to her. In this podcast, she talks about how to cope with losing a job, how to keep hope alive during a pandemic, and what to do about the shitty committee. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on, Julia. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me today. I'm thrilled to be online with you, to do this podcast with you. Thank you. Life is change, you say in your book, This Too Shall Pass. The more we're able to adapt, the richer our life is likely to be. Well, we're sure as hell having to adapt now. You've dealt with people experiencing pretty much all the different kinds of pain life can offer, but you've never dealt with people living through a pandemic. Did you ever think you would live through a pandemic? No, I, absolutely I didn't. I mean, I remember looking at SARS from a distance and, you know, bird flu from a distance and had this sort of blissful ignorance that happened to other people in other countries and it wouldn't happen to me and it wouldn't happen to us. And that's, you know, in December when this first became um, kind of public from China, I I was in touch with my Chinese publishers and wrote them more messages like, I'm so sorry, but I never thought for a minute it would be us. And I think that's true of all of us around loss, that we have a kind of blissful ignorance that we think it's going to happen to other people in other ways and that we hope that somehow if we don't think about it, we'll have a kind of magical thinking that it won't happen to us. Mm. Mm, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean, as you know, I've racked up a fair few losses of my own, but even I literally never thought that I'd live through a pandemic. It just wasn't on my radar. You even think I've been to refugee camps and interviewed Syrian refugees and so on, but and I have thought what what would it like to be in a war, but I've literally never thought what would it be like to be living through a pandemic. So it's just Almost almost impossible to get one's head around, even though we actually are living through it. I feel, I feel because we've been in lockdown, it feels surreal to me. Mm. So I've gone through kind of different weathers. You know, that day Boris Johnson told us we were all locked down. I had some terrible nights of sleep of sort of real disturbance and fear. And then because my actual daily life you know, I looked out the window, it's the same view. I looked at my kitchen, it was the same. I had tons of work. So it's, it's really hard to compute that something so massive is happening and happening in this moment. Mm. And yet, 
it, it doesn't actually affect me, although, of course, it could tomorrow. Mm. You know, my husband or I could get it tomorrow. Mm. It, it's so strange because I'm in my partner's house in Northamptonshire and it's idyllic, beautiful garden. I haven't lived in a house with a garden in my entire adult life, wonderful countryside, beautiful weather. So on the one hand, we've got this horror show unfolding on our screens, although less so now. It's become the new normal. They don't even bother to show the... Uh, really the photographs of people who've died or their grieving families but certainly for weeks that it was this whole sense of living through a disaster movie but also being in a kind of paradise but then taking your life in your hands when you went to the supermarket and the whole thing is so peculiar that as for you for me it surfaced in my dreams that I couldn't sleep and I would have really really weird exhausting dreams and even that's calmed down now not because it's gone away but because at some weird level I suppose we're all kind of adjusting and yeah I mean it's like I say in my book we are wired to adapt and it's extraordinary you know people talk about the new normal as if it's normal I mean mm. even a year ago people never often people who bereave talked about their new normal it was a word that was used with grief and now broadcasters use it politicians use it it's everyday language mm. and it isn't normal I don't think we even begin to think it's normal, but I guess we want to believe it's normal so that we can trust it and begin to kind of feel that we know where we are because mm. we feel like the ground is shaking beneath our feet. And so if we think that, ah, oh, well, I know this landscape, I know where I am now, I can be two households, I can be a metre apart, you know, the sort of rules, then you can begin to think you have agency and control again, which, of course, in reality, we never actually do but we most of the time are able to believe it because most of the time it's true. Absolutely. It's interesting. I, I wonder how it has, you say that in many ways your life has not changed all that much, but I presume your work has. How different has your work been in the last few months? It's been more intense in lots of ways. Um, I mean, I get a lot of energy from people um, so I've had a lot of contact with people. I think I've got a lot of energy from that, even online. I mean, I feel so grateful for online connection, like you and I having mm. this conversation. I think if we'd been in lockdown and there'd just been the telephone, it would have felt a very different beast. Mm. I think I really would have felt very alone. So yeah. at some level I felt um, connected, but it, it, there is a sense of distortion too. You know, I, I love being in a room with lots of people. I like hugging. I like smells. I like not knowing what's going to happen next. Mm. And now my life is much more regimented than it was. I don't have the chaos of travel or things, you know, mm. <laughs> lots of things that when you're out in the world, you're, you um, have to encounter. And so just being in our four walls has been very safe, in, you know, like you said, for you. Mm. I mean, it's strange. Last week, I went back to my flat and slept in my own bed for the first time for months. Uh, and I nearly wept with joy when I saw the traffic and the buses and the roadworks and the chaos. <laughs> and, and I also saw three friends. I saw my upstairs neighbour on his terrace, which involved walking through his hallway and up his stairs, which felt unbelievably illicit. And um, <laughs> I saw another friend sitting her downstairs neighbour has kindly let her use her front garden. And 
I, I again the kind of visceral sense of being with people you love who you haven't been able to see obviously we couldn't touch but just being in their presence for the first time was just extraordinary and like you I, I'm a, I mean I love going to parties I get my energy from being with other people even though I work from home on my own most of the time I go out most nights so it's it's a, a major adjustment even without going through a major loss and I I suppose we are all grieving the life we have lost which we don't know that we'll get back yes I mean it's what I call in my book living losses mm. so we've lost you know we've lost a lot of people have lost economic um, certainty or economic um, predictability we've lost connection to everybody we've lost our routines we've lost our freedom we've lost variety We've lost, you know, I mean, everyone said it at the same time, so many different levels of loss. And it's a kind of anticipatory loss as well. I mean, I've worked with a number of people whose members of their family have died by mm. COVID, and that's a different level of loss. Mm. But yes, but and, and that is actually exacerbated by everyone around them experiencing loss. Mm. Um, and that their own future looks different, not only because their grandfather or their partner died, but because um, the world has changed. We haven't been through anything like this before. And so I suppose we're just all working out how you do it. And in one sense, making it all up as we go along. I mean, I presume that you've had to transfer your practice online, have you? I have. I'm interested in how you are how your work is working online, because so much of a therapist's work is to do with body language and also very visceral feelings about how someone is in the room and if any of that is lost when you see them on Skype. I think it is different but even so you and I talking I pick up a lot from the tone of your voice the cadence of your voice mm. and you will from me and similarly online in some ways they're they're magnified because I see their faces much closer up than I would in my therapy room. I see more about their life, where they live and what their room is like. And, you know, obviously like with everybody, children pop in or, you know, the doormat, the bell goes. And so it, it, it can be very intimate. Um, and I've worked on Zoom actually for quite a long time. I've learned to do, so for trauma, the treatment, I've been learning to do recently is called EMDR, which is called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a, a, a really bad mouthful. And I've learned to do that online, which has been astonishingly powerful and effective online. Um, I've had incredible results with it. So, and only one client out of my whole caseload wanted to stop. So yeah. it's, I actually, we've, I think we're adaptive too. Mm. Like given nothing or this, mm. this is quite good. And then you invest in it. And the minute you trust in it and you kind of see me and we, and they get through a session and they've talked about a lot of difficult things and they feel differently, then it works, mm. you know. And if, if, um, if a vaccine is invented tomorrow, which alas it won't be, and we all went back to normal or some kind of normal, how much of your new way of working would you plan to continue with? That's such a good question. 
I think I would be out of London more than I am now. Mm. Um, and it's true of all of us that are lucky enough to have two places. Most of the people I've spoken to um, and, you know, colleagues who have other colleagues, most people say, I'm going to work from home more now. Um, I'm not going to go into the office so much. I'm not going to commute so much. Um, and I want to be out of the city. I mean, whether that's... So I kind of have two thoughts. One is, I think, societally, we change very slowly. Um, and, you know, after 2008 and after 9-11 on 11, everybody said we're going to be a kinder, gentler world. The world is going to change. And it, it really didn't. <laughs> Look at our government. And, <laughs> it has. It's wonderful. Couldn't be kinder. <laughs> and and now everyone says, you know, we're going to build better. We're going to build new. We're going to mm. have, be in, have a change, better, kinder, gentler world. Um, and I'm not sure that's the case. Yeah. But I think what this has done is accelerate what was already changing. So because of the technology, I could work, I've worked some of the time online anyway. Mm. So I think it's just accelerating or what was already in the system, if you like. Mm. Um, and people more and more wanted to work from home and have multiple times and ways of working. And I think that, I don't think any big business could fight that mm. um, anymore. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because people have wanted to work more flexibly for a long time. Business have said, oh, but you won't be productive enough and it will take too long and there'll be endless obstacles. And then suddenly it happens overnight. And from the business point of view, it's largely worked fine. I think they've been, uh, nobody can argue anymore that people aren't productive at home. I think rather the opposite, that work then bleeds into every single area, moment of your life. And people feel slightly kind of paranoid and feel they need to have, perhaps produce even more than they would if they were in an office. And that has its flip side as well. Yeah, I think two, two things. I think one, what you miss from the office is the sort of the chat and the water cooler moments and the ideas. Mm. I think there's something about going out to prep together or hanging around someone's desk or that something happens. And I think that creativity and spark, and also there's a sense if you're in a room with lots of people working, it does kind of keep you going. Whereas if you have to keep self-motivated all the time, um, it's quite hard on you. Mm. So I think flexibly in and out of the office is a very good kind of um, uh, negotiation for that. But I also think every single person needs to create proper boundaries and proper rules for themselves for working at home so that you don't, because you already you had that complete convergence mm. of home and work when mm. people are texting or going on Instagram in bed with their partners and, you know, always sort of working the whole time, 24-7. That's mm. so bad for your whole being it's bad for your relationships it's bad for your work you need to switch off psychologically so that you can switch on when you've had some rest mm. and so I worry about that I must say people really getting burnout from constantly being on mm. and if we if we can't I mean whatever people go back to in the short term is not going to bear much resemblance to their old work environment and that chatting by the water cooler you probably won't be allowed to have a water cooler <laughs> you have to bring in bring in your own bottle and make sure nobody ever touches it or they'll die oh, <laughs> so yeah. what true for as long as this thing lasts which unfortunately could be quite a while 
Um, how do you think people can get some sense of that serendipity and camaraderie? I know lots of people are doing Zoom calls and, uh, and I mean, I am with my friends, but, um, but I do think that that exactly what you say, that creative spark, that energy, that for many people is kind of the main reason they go to work. Mm. What and connection. And connection, exactly. Mm. I want, I mean, so I don't know if this is true for you, but, and maybe this is, I think this is true of a lot of people, but I, 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 I think walking and talking mm. is very, um, innovative not yeah. innovative um releasing yes because you're not looking at something having to kind of drag it out of your brain mm. you're not forcing yourself but the movement of your body the rhythm and if you're doing it with someone else so if I've got a new idea or I've got something I'm worried about actually most of my book I write in my head before oh. I do it on a bicycle I do it on a walk mm. I so I think meeting in parks going for walks even around the streets um having you know your meter apart I think it is now um I think that's a way that you could I think being outside even in the winter mm. moving and thinking and walking because you look at the ground you have space you then look at each other you're not eyeballing each other and I think that can create real kind of richness and fertility mm, very interesting now, you talk in GriefWorks about a conversation that sparked your path into therapy. Can you tell me about it? I started volunteering with um, something called the Westminster Bereavement Service, and it meant going into people's homes and supporting them through grief. And I was, you know, relatively young. I was 30, and I went and met this woman um, who's at the top of a very high-rise building after the following the death of her daughter in a terrible... She had been hit by a lorry and she died just before Christmas. And I was incredibly scared and I didn't know what I was doing. But even after the first time I'd walked into her very, very hot um, flat, when I came out, it was a kind of aha moment when I knew that's what I wanted to do, that I wanted, I've always been more interested in what's going on people on the inside than how they look or what they first say on the outside. But meeting this woman who was utterly distraught, um, quite rightly, um, I knew that, that that's the work I wanted to be in and wanted to do. And it took me tons of therapy to work out what had probably been the driver for that. But it, it, which was to do with my childhood, like all things, <laughs> if you're a therapist anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was rather amazing. And what had you been doing before then? I know you had lots of children. Uh, is that what you had been doing? So no, I never stopped working. So I, oh. I had four, I got married at 20 and I worked in publishing then. Um, mm. And at Chatham Windows, I was a secretary. Oh. And and my boss, Christopher Macleahose, he called me child and said, child, read this. Child, do that. And, I mean, he was brilliant for me because he was pretty intolerant, but also he was bits – he kind of sparked my curiosity to read in a way that hadn't really been sparked before. So I'm very grateful to him. And 
sparked me to really love books. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd always read, but working in publishing with him, he has this sort of ferocious appetite and sort of passion for books mm-hmm. that I that that sort of ignited me. Um, so I did that until I had children. And then I did some more A-levels, weirdly, after I had mm. my first daughter. And then I had a decorating business. And I, so I did that until I was 29. And then I started training as a therapist, well, volunteering and then training as a therapist. And when you um, did that, did you, did you feel as though that was your vocation? I don't think I'd have put such a grand word on it. But I loved it. Mm. I mean, I've always liked working. I the, the sort of the best version of me comes out when I'm working whatever the work is so you know Freud says love and work mm. work and love that's all there is mm. but I love the drive of work I love the structure of work I love the sense of belonging of work I love getting stuff done um, I love learning um pushing um you know, I think I've been competing with my sisters and my twin brother all my life, so I'm still competing with them age 60. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and, you know, I, lo- I really like working. But your work is very, very emotionally challenging. You deal with people in immense pain. Many doctors and healthcare workers also do, obviously, but they cope with the suffering of the people they treat some, quite a lot by blocking it out. You have to feel it, sometimes literally, in your body. What do you do when it feels overwhelming? I mean, doctors have the benefit of making people better most of the time. Which, um... So mm. I, I, feel, I like the intensity. So I love building a relationship with someone and therapy relationships are incredibly intimate and personal. Mm. I guess I, on the one hand, I know it's their story and it's not mine, but of course it affects me. And, you know, I, because, I don't know, 15, 20 hours a week, I hear stories of of death and dying. Mm. You know, when someone has a headache, I think they've got a brain tumour. So that's, my lens of what's normal is completely off kilter is completely abnormal Mm. so I'm much more nervous about everything about driving Mm. accidents things going wrong um and I work quite hard to balance the madness so I kickbox and I exercise and I cycle and I do yoga and I do a bit of meditation and I drive my husband mad and he does his best to calm me down (laughs) um and he has a sort of look on his face when I worry about something's going to happen um so i i i'm affected by it and i i i cope fine sort of bit of both yeah sometimes i go a bit tonto (laughs) it's funny because i was just about to ask you you're clear in your books about some of the things we need to do to do to keep resilient and exercise is clearly at at the heart of that running and rest and meditation and not eating too much sugar and not drinking too much all of which sounds like an excellent idea, and I wish I was that paragon. Um, it sounds as though you are, are you? I'm by no means a paragon, but I'm, I, I like rules. So, <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> exactly. I'm an, ad- I'm an adapted good child. So I was the fifth child of five children born in four years. So I decided not to kick against the bricks. I thought I'm going to be the good one and that's how I'm going to get attention. 
mm. um, or love. So I was always good at school. I mean, I was naughty, but I never got caught. I didn't put my, I didn't stand on the parapet to look like I was being naughty. I hid and smoked, you know, on the roof and in the garden, but no one knew. I was never rude to teachers. Um, and I was brought up in quite in a sort of old fashioned, there were no rules, uh, old, old fashioned, but also no rules um, household. So I very early, and I think all these habits start early, I made lots of rules for, my, for myself mm. from an early age. And it's kind of worked for me. Mm. It means that I'm, you know, people look at me and they raise their eyebrows to heaven with the boredom of it. <laughs> but it, but it, it and, and look down on me with contempt. But it kind of works for me. It means I wake up, feel pretty good at most For days. me, every time I have a glass of wine, it feels like a party. So I need to have a party every day and I need coffee and cake every day <laughs> because it just cheers me up massively. But at the same yeah. time, at the same time, I think surely a treat is something you don't have actually several times a day, whereas for me, it appears to be. So I'm very, um, <laughs> very uh, <laughs> admiring and envious of people who have the kind of restraint you have and who think that rules are... Um, are fun to be obeyed. yeah I think they're really boring <laughs> <laughs> no fun without rules I mean the reason I have rules is because I'm addictive mm. so if I had you know what so I don't drink at all now but I did drink and I drank far too much mm. so once I had one I had literally no gears I'd go from naught <laughs> to 100 and it scared me mm. and so I you know I stopped drinking when I was 26 right well that's yeah um, very interesting that whole thing about the addictive personality. Very interesting. Yeah. I think maybe I'm somewhere. But I use that addiction for work, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty yes. obsessive. Yes, yes. So my love affairs are with my books. You know, my the third person in my marriage. Well, at the moment, it is um, is a book. So, so you know, you're, are you, so, you're work, so you're working on another one, are you, at the moment? I've just started on another one, right. but for the last four years, if my husband ever asked me what I was thinking about, <laughs> it. Um, you know, Brad Pitt, it was my book. And literally, that's all I think about. I wake up, I think about mm. it, all work and other stuff. Mm. Um, I'm obsessive. Well, your books are absolutely wonderful. And uh, I mean, to, amazing to be both uh, one of the country's top therapists and uh, to have written beautiful best-selling books I didn't realize about the publishing background so that explains if you've been a, a huge reader that will go some of the way towards it but did you know what a good writer you were when you started writing grief works I mean obviously you have to make notes you have to make I notes, love you saying that you need to say it again. <laughs> no really? I've always been stupid yeah I left school at 16 so uh, you know, and I was brought up like a posh girl who didn't need to be educated. Mm. So I, you know, I went to schools that <laughs> did not think what A-levels I got mattered. I mean, they were wow. fun. Wow. So I, I, my grammar is the worst in the world. So I thank God for copy editors. <laughs> um but I know, I mean, the thing as a therapist is I know what I feel and I know I'm very aware of what's going on all the time. Yeah, well, exactly. I was going to say you must write very detailed notes and your observations of your clients are 
in the books anyway, when I presume in real life, are extremely, yeah. uh, incredibly sort of tiny and minute and and astute. So presumably that gave you the description, you know, it was a big part of the descriptive powers that you developed in the books. Yes, that is. And actually with this new book, which is going to be about families, mm. is going to be all on Zoom. So I'm wonder. I don't, I mean, oh, until yes. there's a change. Yes. Um, so I don't know, I don't know how that's going to go. Yes, well, I think it's going to have, this is going to have a huge implication for so many art forms, actually, uh, again, depending on how long it lasts, because uh, theatre, dance, all the rest of it, it's all digital at the moment. Personally, the last thing I want to do at the end of the day is watch a screen again, but um, but people have to be creative and they have to do something. So, you know, well done them. So I was going but it's to, devastating. De- it is, it is. For our soul as a nation, it's devastating. Well, I think, um, again, it's part of the kind of multiple layers of grief and also about how many you can deal with at once and and also about uncertainty. If we all knew that this was going to pass in three months' time, we'd be fine. But, of course, we don't. And um, you, you talk... Um, about uncertainty in one of your books as a, a fertile void. Um, quite hard to see. I mean, of course, there will be good things that come out of this, but there is the void is very empty in all kinds of ways. How, how can that uncertainty, how can we, A, manage that uncertainty and B, use it for the moment in any kind of a productive way? I think you have to hold both. So the fertile void is, it's from Gestalt, it's from Fritz Paz, mm. I stole his term. But um, what it is is that when you have the completion of a, an event or a time in your life or a job or a relationship or whatever it is, people are always in a hurry for certainty to look for the next thing and start doing the next thing because they, they hate the not knowing, mm. as we all do. And so what he meant about the fertile void is to allow space between the end of one relationship before you kind of and allow what naturally needs to emerge before you invest and jump into the next thing. Mm. Because that's the only way you're more likely to align what you really want with what really works for you. And, and the fact that you can do it is that you give space to sort of settle your whole system and it also trusts that you have agency that once you have your new idea or relationship or job or project or whatever it is that you can put your focus and your energy to make that happen Um, it doesn't include an environment where there are brick walls around so many of your opportunities Mm, because they're just not there anymore yeah. Um, so that is devastating. It's devastating economically for thousands and thousands of people, but it's also devastating psychologically mm. because you kind of may have a conversation with you and then come up with an idea and then you kind of put your head to one side and you go, oh, I can't do that because that type of business, so where it's, you want to record a podcast, if you want to find a backer for it if you it was going to be a a radio station or a magazine 
they can't do it. They've got no advertising. You know, wherever you look, there isn't a business yeah. that hasn't been affected quite dramatically in a bad way. Mm-hmm. So lots of your choices are, are, are gone are off the table. And I guess what I think we need to find a way for doing of each of ourselves is having a sort of daily structure, keeping our skylines short mm-hmm. for today. Mm-hmm. Um, having small wins and things that you can do, and that we need hope. We, ha- you know, hope is the alchemy that turns a life around. Yeah. We have to believe that um, from this we will have possibilities that can actually bear fruit, and that we can have a, a interesting future work-wise. If that's what we're talking mm-hmm. about today, mm-hmm. and hope is. You know, it is an emotion, but it's also a way of thinking that you, you know, you think of a plan, you have a plan A, you have a plan plan B, and you have the self-confidence and the kind of trust in yourself that you can make it happen. I'm so interested in hope, this whole issue of hope, and also how it's kind of recalibrated in the light of current circumstances, because as we... And know, false hope. Sorry, yes. And false hope. And false hope. Well, that's exactly it. So it is about uh, optimism that's grounded in a kind of realistic assessment of the situation. And the realistic options, as you just said, are very limited for an awful lot of people. And so it's kind of how people can balance that, not knowing when this will end or if it will end. We assume it will at some point, but we actually don't know or at what price. I mean, you know, other other pandemics have ended because there has been in effect herd immunity but with millions of the population wiped out which you know we would obviously slightly prefer not to happen um so on an individual basis what people who have lost dreams now they've had dreams absolutely shattered the next thing i wanted to talk to you about actually was kind of employment possibilities for young people but how what's your kind of most practical advice for managing that that hope dangling snatched away sort of skeptical optimism um yeah exactly Mm. i mean so i I don't have a simple answer i think it's a combination of things i think you know like your book the art of not falling apart i think you each person it's is minded to find their own ways of building their resilience and resilience isn't just a given. You can build it and you build it by having all the habits we've already talked about, by doing your exercise, by keeping yourself balanced, by um, having small structure in the day, of having routines, of staying connected to others, of staying collectively, tribally connected to your kind of village, if you like, so you feel like you're not alone. And all of that helps build this capacity to surf the waves of disappointment and crushing um, losses. So I think we have a responsibility for that. But also, I, you know, as human beings, we're evolutionary, amazingly adaptive and creative. And Mm. I think I really am hopeful. And I don't think it's sort of blind, kind of ignorant hope. I think many people will come will come with new ideas and creative ways of building businesses and opportunities and things that they can do and i've seen it with lots of 
on Instagram, lots of young people doing different things, which, you know, aren't going to make them Elon Musk, which they wouldn't want to be anyway. Mm. But <laughs> it's giving them a task. It's giving them meaning and, and purpose. And they're, you know, earning some money. So that I, I think that there's that. Um, and, and they have to acknowledge the losses. You know, they're going mm. out to parks and parties and snogging and mm. trying things out and traveling and going to uni in the way what you can do with the freedom of it and the fear of it and the awfulness mm. of it. But also all of that experimenting has been so kind of hygiened away from them. Um, mm. And economically, lots of their jobs, as you said, are lost. Um, so they, mm. they're really paying a big price for us older ones, really. Mm, mm, exactly, exactly. And in um, This Too Shall Pass, you tell the story of a young man who struggles very hard to get a job for all kinds of psychological reasons. And you express your anger that many schools and universities don't do enough to prepare their students for the job market. Now, clearly, the whole landscape is going to be very different now and even more challenging. What should schools and colleges do now to prepare youngsters for the jobs market they're likely to face i mean i don't know what you think but honestly i think there should be the equivalent of an a level i mean kaz who is the mm. the young man in my book he didn't know what the different industries were he didn't know how they mm. worked he didn't know how to read a balance sheet he didn't know so he'd filled in some kind of but Myers-Briggs form that told him he should be, I don't know what it told him he should be, I can't remember, something that he never would be in a million years. But no one had really educated him in ways of looking at jobs and the alignment between what the possibilities were for him, what his actual skill set was, where his mm. interests were, what his long-term picture of his life was. I mean, it's not very complicated, um, and I don't think it would take a huge amount of time if they put more investment in that in young people so that they have more direction. Um, because somehow, you know, I think young people are now told, you know, reach for the stars, the sky's the limit. All you have to do is work and then you'll have the future you want. And they do everything. They tick all the boxes. They get their A-levels. They go to university. They come out of university. And they're still, maturation-wise, very young, much younger than we were because they've had much more parenting, much more protection, much more, in my case, education. And um, they don't have a clue. They are completely mm. kind of empty of, of where to go. They may have been given all these promises and there's nothing on the table. Well, that's so interesting you say that because I feel many have been sold apart, actually. They've been uh, told, millennials yeah. in particular, have imbibed the myth that, you know, you must have passion and purpose and creativity in your work and you can turn your side hustle into your, into Maybe, your career. Yeah. And, and, and make the world better while you're doing it. It has to be green. And make the world better yeah. while you're doing it. Exactly. And, you know, it's just... For most people, it's just not true. And, uh, you know, I, I remember going to um, a council estate near where I used to live in Camberwell and asking various youngsters what they wanted to do. And, of course, they all wanted to be footballers or celebrities. Mm. And you think, well, actually, it's not very feasible, is it? And even if you want to be a writer or an artist or, for that matter, a journalist, it really upsets me that all the, the universities are producing all these courses for jobs that don't, A, 
currently are in the process of declining and definitely are not going to exist in a few years' time, or certainly not in the form in which they're being led to believe they do exist. So I just... um, but you know, but nobody wants to be told you're going to have to go and do a job you hate, which of course would be unfortunate. And you've been privileged to do work mm-hmm. you love, and I've been privileged to do work I love. So again, how do we steer youngsters or anyone for that matter um, down a line where they're not doomed to do work they hate, but they're not expecting to do work they adore, given the economic realities? Yeah, a more realistic picture. I, th- I, mm. I. I mean, I don't really know, but I think, you know, I worked for, for a long time doing stuff I hated. You know, I was a waitress, I worked in shops, mm. I, and I'm not saying, but I, I never had any real expectations that I would do anything that was really significant or meaningful. And in a way, having low expectations was easier. Yes. Because I've yes. always surpassed them by a million miles. So I think being set up... <laughs> um, that you're going to have this meaningful, purposeful, engaging, enriching work life is, is I, I think it is setting them up to fail. Um, and I think it, we, you know, most people who I know that work, and, and, it, and it's true of me too, I mean, I love what I do, but, you know, a huge chunk of it is sweat. And then now and again, you have those yeah. amazing moments where you feel when a client, you know, gets it or something good happens. But this idea that you're pot constantly going to be hit with starlight and twinkles, you know, I mean, for 25 mm. years, I sat in a room without a window in a hospital working with families whose babies and children had died. And it really was not glamorous. It was, but I mean, I loved it, but it wasn't, it, it, it was, it was, it was hard work. Yeah. Um, it was a lot yes. of work. And most work, thank yeah. you. Yeah, and most work, whether it's whether it's uh, employment or freelance, an awful lot of it now is basically just answering bloody emails all day long. You know, it's not exactly exciting, no. is it? And if you're freelance, nobody pays you for it. And if and if you're not, well, you know, you didn't kind of pop out of the womb thinking, you know, what I want to do when I'm grown up. I really want to answer a hundred emails a no. day. It's, uh, but it's what our work kind of often is. Now, I think you're absolutely right that the youngsters are the ones who face probably the biggest challenge and are paying the price for us older people at the moment and let's hope and pray that that shifts in time to salvage something for most of them given that the work environment was in a process of massive change already you know that absolutely absolutely and and exactly exactly and those accelerate and and i think it is right that what's happened has in many areas i mean what's happening in the arts is completely different obviously but in many areas accelerated changes that were going to happen anyway but i think Another sort of age range which for which it's tough is uh, middle-aged people or people over 50 who lose mm-hmm. jobs. And as we all know, at the best of times, it's not easy to walk into another job or change careers because some of these, some industries are, are seriously threatened now. I mean, journalism, as we know, is under even more threat now with what's happened to advertising and so on. But journalists who lose a job often don't really expect to get another one. But people in other areas probably have expected to in the past, and that may or may not be possible. But if you're 55 or 51 or 48 even, um, those chances are reduced. How do you, when people come to you in that situation, how do you 
support them, both psychologically. I mean, I know your job isn't to mm. give advice, but there's a huge psychological hit, which is my status has been shattered. I mean, on the one hand, you've got a massive blow to your identity and your um, ego and pride and psyche. And on another, you obviously you've got practical worries about how you're going to pay the rent or the mortgage. How do you help people through that? I mean, I think exactly as you've described it, this huge sense of your identity. Work is, you know, for, for most people, it is a key part of their identity. Um, and that being taken away, you lose your status. You know, when someone is retired um, and you say to someone, I'm retired, people will always ask you, what did you do? to kind of get mm. the measure of where you were in the hierarchy of life. Yes. Were you up there, same as me, yes. kind of below me? And so I think there's that constant survival of the fittest um, in in our kind of daily life. And so it's incredibly difficult to say, I'm not working, or people make up some story, like I'm journaling, I'm, you know, I'm being a journalist when actually you haven't been given any work. And so it's a loss mm. that you need to grieve. I mean, some of the things that I think help is volunteering. And I know that sounds a bit do-goody and you're probably swiveling your eyes, but... <laughs> no, I'm not at all. I'm a good believer in these things. Do, when you feel really bad, one of the best things that you can do for yourself is do something for other people because mm. it changes your perspective. It takes you out of yourself. You feel proud of what you've done. You meet a new community you kind of feel good about yourself at the end of your day. And it can give you all sorts of connections that you may not have expected. So I think the other thing is kind of moving out of your normal kind of circle and exploring new um, opportunities and trying things out and courses and retraining, um, joining agencies. So I think you, but you, the difficulty is the roller coaster of disappointment. Um, mm, exactly exactly yeah but so I mean it's not an easy answer I do think volunteering is a very it's very good on your CV as well yes yes uh, when you were talking before I was thinking about um, and you may have been thinking about the man is it Gerhardt in this two pass this two Heinrich, um, who had retired from a very prestigious uh, job and was going to all kind of art classes and philosophy classes and so on, and said that the group naturally uh, kind of broke into groups of people according to the status mm. of their former jobs and whether they had children and grandchildren. And it was a, a kind of natural arrangement into former hierarchies, which I thought was so interesting. It's terrible the way we do that, isn't it? But it must be evolutionary. We kind of go into our tribes mm. where we feel like we're part of the pack and we can know each other and it's familiar and kind of stranger danger, all that kind of thing is very... But you see it... it Sorry, I mean, absolutely that. But you say it's interesting, this thing about tribes as well, because, again, the millennials who are doing their podcasts or doing their um, freelance creative, uh, whatever it is, and many of them I'm hugely impressed by. I listen to lots of those mm. podcasts, and I think they're very, very creative and energetic, and uh, I'm full of admiration for them. But the kind of general premise seems to be that you should have a tribe, and you then, then cater for your tribe. And I've never wanted a tribe. I've I've always had, you know, as a journalist or a writer, I've always had readers ranging from very young to very old, male and female. And if someone says to me I should be targeted towards middle-aged women or whoever, 
whoever else it might be, I instantly want to think, no, I just don't want to do that. And I also, it also feels to me, um, exactly as you say about evolutionary tribes, surely we should be trying to break yeah. away from our tribes. Diversity. We? I think it's much richer. I, I mean, I completely agree with you, but I think we can fall into kind of both ways. Um, but, mm. you know, you you like adventure, you like the not knowing, you like firing your curiosity and looking into new places. And that, you know, that's, that's a huge thing that's in your favour. So there's that thing, the three Ps, pervasive, permanent and personal. Oh, I don't know about that. Tell me so about that. We can say to ourselves, this is going to ha- it's, it's going to be in every part, you know, this failure is going to be in every part of my life, that it's um, mm. pervasive. It's going to be forever. I'm never, ever, ever going to succeed again. And personal, it's me. This always happens to me. This is what happens to me. This is my life. This is, you know, the world is against me and I am down there in the hole and I'm going to stay there forever. And so that kind of negative thinking, as much as I hate the kind of idea of super optimist thinking, that thinking affects your feeling and then it affects your behavior. So if you have those three Ps, it's very hard to unchain yourself from that black hole. So I suppose there's an element to what you've just said, which is about protecting yourself, isn't there? And it's about where the line is between protecting yourself from um, life's blows and also and making them self-perpetuated. Clearly, none of us can create a pandemic from our negative thinking, but there are other things in life that we can create through negative thinking. And it's a, it's a kind of the more awareness you have of the kind of what I call shitty committee that's going on in your head, the more awareness of you know you have someone who you have a lot of insight and awareness so you're aware of what you're thinking you're aware of how it's affecting your behavior and that awareness gives you choices because you have a little gap Mm. between what you're thinking and then what you do and that's what we most need so you can know that your default mode would be you know the three p's and then you can catch Mm. yourself thinking that and you can go no actually this is today and today i can you know, go for a walk in the street and not be hit by a pathogen walking towards me. Um, I dare Mm. to do that. So you can then choose to do something in your behavior that you then feel better having been out and got some food and kind of been with the world. So the world doesn't get smaller and smaller and more and more frightening. Um, Yes. Because that's the, the, the terrifying thing is that you can really feed yourself kind of in the end, not moving at all. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And I mean, we are all or nearly all experiencing intimations of mortality now where where even a trip to the supermarket feel like a game of Russian roulette. Um, but we're all going to die. And I would prefer not to die sooner rather than later, not just having had cancer twice. And you kind of think, actually, I'd really, really like some life now. Um, I mean, more yeah. years ahead. But um, but. Of course, the thing about death is it does intensify our experience of life. And I'm wondering how how we can turn this these intimations of mortality into something positive in our work and life. I mean, I think you've answered it in your question is that when we deny death, we sort of take it for we take life for granted and we don't really appreciate it and really count our blessings. You know, it's often when we lose something that we realize we really value it, you know, relationships or you've mm. lost that 
skirt or I don't know, not a skirt because you don't really use skirts, but your purse or something. And then you go, oh, it's my favourite purse. Before it was just your purse. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and you remember who gave it to you and you kind of look for it everywhere. And, and so I think, you know, I've been banging on about holding both, that it's a negotiation. You know, life is risky. Loving is risky. Everything we do has risk. And mm. um, death is always there. And so my grief, why I wrote Grief Works was I felt that people's kind of absolute denial of death meant that two things, they were very ignorant about what grief felt like and felt that they were doing it wrong and they were going mad when actually what they were feeling was completely natural. But also it mm. denied them the kind of richness of knowing that they're going to die which makes your day more precious. You know, you must have got mm. that from having cancer. I, I mean, of course, it's yeah, terrifying definitely. and awful, the process. And I don't know what your treatment process was, but mainly that's terrible. But when you feel well, you, you, you don't really appreciate just waking up and feel well until you've been ill. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think in a way we should all, I was going to say we should all have those sort of um, memento mori kind of still lifes of skulls and so on, but actually we don't really need them at the moment because <laughs> we've got them on the telly all the time. Yeah. So but, uh, so I suppose, um, and the previous generations had them all the time, as you say. And it, it's interesting, in, in Grief Works, we talk about the effect of the First World War, the Spanish flu, and the Second World War on the generations who went through them. Interestingly, that in, in terms of frozen grief and stiff upper lip and contributing to the great taboo that we have about death or have had about death in the 20th and now 21st century, you say that history forms the character of a generation. How do you think the character of the younger generation will be formed by this experience? Gosh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, it, I guess the the sort of wounds and the losses that they're experiencing now will live on in them and they will influence and shape their belief system about trust, about danger, about work, um, about mm. their future. It will certainly affect their relationship, how they see the generation before them and the generations before them. Um, and whether that's all bad, I, I don't know. It could be that they'll be much more anxious, they'll be resentful, furious, bitter, and, you know, but it could also be that they recognise the preciousness of life, that they recognise life is risky and they dare and they have adventures you know who knows what that will be but it will certainly you know our experience shapes our belief system and our belief system informs and shapes our present and our future our decision making so it will have a massive impact on them and the more they realize the impact of it then the more choices and range of opportunities it can give them if they just kind of think this is me then um, they won't gain the richness from it Mm. I mean, I think one of the interesting and fascinating, in fact, things about this experience is that it's the first time in our lifetimes that there has been a collective experience that every single person in the world is going through. And 
of course, people experience it differently. And those who are on a low income uh, are suffering much, much more badly than people who are well off. But the masters of the universe are perhaps for the first time in their life also suffering because for once they can't control the whole world. And I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because we haven't seen that before. Yeah, I think it's a lesson in humility for the people who always think that they are the masters or the mistresses. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of people have talked about this. I, you know, and and hope it's a wake up call to, uh, to be more humble and recognize, um, you know, a lot of more people are sort of even more ecological about the planet and how precious the planet is because it, it it recovered while we stopped, the planet recovered and we've been plundering it, you know, for centuries. And, you know, people's connections, neighbours, communities, you know, the, the NHS, our value of, you know, what used to be what they were called, now they're called, are they called essential workers? What are they called now? Key workers. Key workers. And before workers, they yeah. had some less important name. So we've changed our perception about what matters and that has to be a good thing if there's one thing one positive thing that you would hope for to come out of this what would it be um oh the thing i'm going to say sounds so cheesy it doesn't matter (laughs) but in the end it's it's love that matters you know when people look back at their lives it isn't the riches they've built, the adventures they've had, it's their love and connection to the people closest to them. And I think Mm. that has been brought into kind of focus now. And it's really what gets us through. Uh, And Mm. it's certainly what matters Mm. most to me. That's really wonderful. Thank you so much, Julia. Um, Absolute delight to have you on the podcast. An absolute pleasure to... I feel like I know you after one hour of talking to you. uh, Without seeing you, uh, looking into a a, a microphone. It's, it's, um, It's been a lovely thing. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share it or rate it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. And if you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended lockdown reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.